Well, hello, Graham Norton here. Thank you to you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Here's what to come from this show. The fantastic Adelio Adadio joins us to talk about the brand new BBC drama, The Responder. Best-selling author Kate Moss OBE fills us in on her new historical novel, The City of Tears, and sublime crime writer Sophie Hanna keeps us on the edge of our seats with her new book, The Couple at the Table. We'll also be playing the checkout challenge with Waitrose, and show chef Martha Collison will be telling us what she's been rustling up. But first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide dilemmas. Today just got nicer. She's here. Mm. See, I did a nice thing for you. You yeah, did. That's, that's very uncharacteristic <laughs> of know. you. But I know. Obviously, something is going well. I'm out of sorts. <laughs> You're out of sorts today. So am I, Graham. I'm fuming. Oh, no. I, what happened? I tell you what, those people who have written letters in are going to get short shrift from me today. Oh, she's on one. No more Mrs. Nice Guy. <laughs> My patience is thin. Trains, that's all I have to say. Oh. The end. Let's move on. I watched your lovely show last night. Oh, my television show, yes. now available on iPlayer. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, the little girl that's in West Side Story, the remake of West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's film, isn't she adorable? Rachel Ziegler, is that her name? Ziegler, I'm saying. Ziegler. Ziegler. Okay, she plays Maria. That's the one. Yeah, no wonder my you're part. interested. My your, part. Your, your part. Where was my call from Steven Spielberg? I can still hit the high notes, baby. <laughs> Maria. And there we leave. No. <laughs> <laughs> and Rose Metafeo. I'm looking forward to her new show. Uh, yes, uh, second season. I love the first season of that. Yeah. And she, was on, she was one of the early guests on this show last year. Oh, was uh, she? Yeah, she has a, um, a comedy special. I don't know if it's still on iPlayer. Horn Dog. It's worth watching. It's very But funny. I loved you saying to her, um, I, you know, I really loved her. And she she went, really? You watched it? <laughs> and you said, yes, I told you. <laughs> like, you I know. mean, normally she'd be right. <laughs> but actually, I had watched it. But I thought, well, that's a rare moment for Graham to actually mean something. I know. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the compliments of a chat show host are very meaningless. I sometimes sit at home and I kind of think, now, I'm just going to see if Graham really likes that film <laughs> or if he really thinks that is funny or is it chat show stuff going on? Because as I was watching it, morning I was thinking do you ever get Groundhog Day where you think to yourself I you know stand up so when they do more than one gig a night I'm sure I've asked that question before there is and also sometimes people are answering a question and then I come back to the room and I, oh, I wonder how long they've been talking for and I wonder <laughs> I wonder what they've been saying and what what was it that I asked them <laughs> yeah and why how, are they talking about that oh did I and how do you get out of that do you just say oh that's grand yeah or just look at my cards to start again <laughs> Start again. Reboot. But Reboot. it's very good that you are still bringing enthusiasm. Oh. Much, much like this show, Graham, because you've been doing this year now. A year? <laughs> Who are you? Twice a week, I know. I'm Martha. Yeah. I do some stuff about Waitrose food. Yeah, where's the marmalade? <laughs> I want marmalade. And what I'm very excited about as well on the te televisual unit is that the Ozarks is back. We all watched the Ozark in the first lockdown. I think our tastes may have changed. I think we may have got more sophisticated I, I've never oh you never went there no because what, I think somebody told me it starts really violently and I just thought I don't want to watch that it's quite violent all the way through to oh. be honest with oh, you oh then I really don't want to watch it no no thank you but it's only pretend Graham yeah, 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 but I don't want it in my house I don't want it mind you saying that I've just started watching and it's so good uh, Dope Sick oh that's on a medium I cannot get oh which is it um, now, yeah, now you're yeah, asking. Now you don't I, know. I don't know. But it's out there. Uh, oh, Disney. It's on Disney. Disney. It doesn't seem very Disney. That no. Is, is that violent too? No, but it's very depressing. 
Oh. Uh, don't you worry. <laughs> don't you worry, little lady. It's very depressing. Oh, well, you're de- what a marvellous recommendation, Graham. <laughs> but no, it's, it's As if we need more things to bring us down. I know. Horrible it's an eight-hour drama about the opioid crisis in America. Oh, my goodness. See, I'm selling it now. I had to stop watching Chernobyl for that reason. Oh, do you know what? That's worth it if oh. you get through it. No. Uh, I need joy and silliness and West Side Story at the moment. How's your week been, by the way? I have I haven't seen you for ages. Well, I had a fight with the sharks on Thursday. and uh, no, Jets and sharks. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, West Side Story, see. I see, see. I see, yeah, I yeah, see, yeah. 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 Um, uh, what have I done? I, I've, tr- I've tried to do some book. I'm oh, writing to, your book? I'm supposed to be writing my book. And how's, that, how's that panning out? Panning? No, I actually did write some this week. <laughs> I don't, You're I mean, up against the deadline, aren't you? Yeah. Hmm. Still on track. Good. If I stay up all night, every night between now and then. <laughs> Don't eat, sleep or work. <laughs> yeah, I should be OK. I should be fine. And when will it hit the shops? Do you know? Uh, I think it's been published in September, October or something. Ready for the Christmas market. Oh, of course. Such an easy book to wrap. <laughs> Unless they go crazy with the cover. <laughs> or do that? a 3D cover. <laughs> yeah, or round. It's just a round book. I look forward to that, Graham Norton. Uh, all right, you gather your letters. All and, right. And we'll have Graham's Guide. Virgin Radio. Okay, off we go with the letter. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, we have a new next-door neighbour. She's a lovely lady, she's a single mum and works for the NHS. The problem is, we have with her, is her dog. Whenever she is out of the house working a long shift, the dog barks non-stop all day. We both work at home and it's torture to constantly hear the dog barking all day. We're surprised it doesn't set our dog off too. What do we do? Should we say something to her? And if so, what? It seems such a minor thing, but when it's constant all day, it can get quite grating. I'm also a bit worried that the dog is all right. And that is from Laura in Manchester. Well, Laura in Manchester, as I say, I'm taking no prisoners today. There's a very simple solution here. You are at home all day. You have a dog that would like a little playmate. Do say something to her and say, look, I know you work very long hours and it seems sad for your little dog to be at home all day, especially as he constantly barks with anxiety. So I'm going to suggest that I take him for a couple of days with my dog because we work from home, they can play together and then maybe a couple of days you could get a dog walker. You know, you just say something like that. I mean, you may not want to have her dog, but it's the neighbourly thing to do. And if it's going to drive you mad, then you have the dog in your house where it's not so anxious. It's got people around, another dog around. It feels comfortable. She no bark anymore. Yes, I must say, it doesn't seem like rocket science to just go, you know, I'm here listening to it bark all day. I could just look at it all day and maybe not hear it bark. Really? Yeah. I mean, unless her dog, unless Laura's dog doesn't get on with other dogs... Well, Which I, I've been in that situation. Yes, but we haven't, we haven't. I would be listening to dog barking for the rest of my life rather than invited into the house <laughs> with my old terrier. But she doesn't mention that. And I like to assume that all dogs, you know, they're a bit sniffy at first, literally, until they get to know each other. And then all dogs generally seem to, well, most dogs. Yeah, and then <laughs> chuck them out into the garden and they'll be fine. Put them in the garden. Maybe when you take yours for a walk, you take hers for a walk. You know, if you don't want it in your house, just. 
a dog left alone for a long period without anybody coming in and in a panic about the fact that no one's ever coming home again because dogs don't understand is going to bark because it's anxious, it's frightened, it's scared, yeah. all of those things. So I think that's an easy solution, Laura, in Manchester, and it's a very nice thing to do. And then when you need a dog sitter, perhaps... Vice versa. versa. And also, presumably, if she's a single mom, maybe the kids get home from school before uh, the lady does, so then the kid could pick up the dog, so you wouldn't have the dog all day, just the barking hours. Yeah. Yeah. I think if there's a dog next door and it's driving you mad in your house and you can alleviate that, it's a no-brainer to me. Yeah. I mean... Unless. Well, I mean, I can't think of it unless, but, you know, you've got... But people are odd. But you've got to think, oh, she's a lovely lady, single mom. She thinks she'd be glad of the help. So then when you speak to her about it, you say, you know, I'm a bit worried about your dog barking, but I've got a solution. So it's not a, you know, it's one of those poo sandwich things. that People say, you say a nice thing, thing. then you say a horrible thing, thing and then, then you say a, good, a nice thing, thing at yeah. the end. Yes, I love your dog. It's very annoying. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> That's it. That kind of thing. Your dog is adorable. <laughs> I can't bear the noise. Pop it over to my You're house. You're an awful dog owner. I'll have it. Thank you very much. Uh, no, I think good guy. Yes, th- this solution surely writes itself. But maybe, maybe the Virgin listeners will have different ideas. My favourite responses today are getting a bottle of Waitrose blended Scotch whiskey uh, to bark Burns Night on Tuesday. It's Burns Night on Tuesday. Who knew? Well, we all do now. Uh, so yes, blended Scotch whiskey. A bottle of that will be going to someone. Mm, delicious. Uh, Claire from Molsey. Laura, you might want to think twice about taking it in if it's Great Dane. That is true. If You know, big dog, small house. Uh, Mark and Evesham. The challenge is, if the neighbour says no to the dog sitting idea, then you're best off soundproofing the room you spend most time in. And I mean, lovely to soundproof a room. Uh, that's always a, a nice project. And also, I guess you... Wherever you work, if you move to a wall that doesn't join onto the house next door, that might help. I don't know. Uh, or headphones. Yeah, work with headphones on. That's another good idea. I just, I mean, I literally just thought of that. Yeah, I'm getting the whiskey. Uh, there you go. No. Uh, Jane is in Leicestershire. Uh, be kind and offer to help out with the neighbour's dog. I know what it's like to have a dog with separation anxiety and long periods of separation never work. And also, even if you can't have the dog in your house, you could offer to walk it over a lunchtime or something, something to cheer it up. So, you know, it would have had a bit of exercise or something. Uh, maybe suggest to your neighbour with the barking dog that they, sh- they should try leaving the radio on as dogs hate silence. Gary in Portsmouth. And apparently they like calming piano music. That's what I've heard. They like calming piano music. Uh, i tell you what. Uh, Gary in Portsmouth, for your radio idea, you can get the bottle of Waitrose blended Scotch whiskey to celebrate Burns Night on Tuesday. Uh, cheers to you. Or whatever the Scot is. Okai or something. I don't know. Anyway, Burns. something. There must be some Burns like toast. but Oh, it's a really long one, isn't it? Yes, you've got to bless the the, the haggis or something. Graham's Guide. Okay, another letter, please. This is quite a long one, Graham. Oh, yeah. And off I go with it. Dear Graham and Maria, 30 years ago, I had an affair with a woman I met through a friend. I didn't tell my wife... Even once it ended, and to my knowledge, she has no idea. I never saw or made contact with the woman since until a few days ago when I bumped into her at the local supermarket. 
What are the chances? I was 33 at the time of the affair. I had a young family uh, and a wife to support. She was eight years younger than me, single, and I truly thought I was in love with her. We did discuss starting a new life together, but in the end, I wasn't prepared to destroy my family for such a selfish reason, reason and therefore we ended it. I recently took early retirement and after spending so much time together, particularly through lockdown, <laughs> I realise my wife and I have little in common and don't really get on. I'm thinking of getting a part-time job to give us some space. My ex-lover told me she did get married, has no children and is recently divorced. She told me that she never stopped loving me and made it clear that she would like to pick things up from where we left off 30 years ago, if I am prepared to leave my wife. When we left the supermarket, we kissed and swapped numbers. Is this my last chance to find true happiness or should I stay and try to make my marriage work? Uh, now, that is from Mark in Canterbury, not his real name. Uh, Mark in Canterbury, your letter, I'm trying not to be too harsh here, but it sounds to me as though you are asking for permission to do this. You know, it, all the ducks are in a row here for you. You are happily trucking along with your wife, as most people do. Of course, lockdown was difficult. Of course, it put pressure on people. You have recently retired, so you're thinking, what am I doing with my, yourself? Don't get a part-time job. Get hobbies. Do things. Keep your mind interested. And that doesn't necessarily mean leaving your wife, who has stuck with you for all this time and you've had children with, to just go and off with someone you bumped into in the supermarket again. It's just like you wouldn't have done anything until you bumped into her. It's just too convenient. So I want to say to you, David, have a bit of a backbone here. You did have one 33 years ago, uh, a greater sense of morality when you ended it and stayed with your wife and children. Now you're 66 and you're thinking this is my last chance saloon. Well, maybe it is, but you're going to throw a great big hand grenade into your life and I wonder you know you bumped into her in the supermarket and now you're thinking of leaving your wife like, you yes. don't know what she's how has she changed in those 30 years you know she might have become a mad woman like if you the, but also if there hadn't been a queue none of this would have happened it just yeah. seems too you know. it's like oh I'm a bit bored with my wife oh look there's a shiny thing over there I'm going to leave my wife now oh yes there's that woman I've previously had an affair with oh good I know how to do that what I are mean, your thoughts well it is what's that what's the male point well, of view I on just this th I just think there is something a bit you know so uh, he could think of this as all, oh, it's romantic, it's kiss, but it's meant to be, you know, and then you, uh, you're at dinner parties going, and you know, we didn't see each other for 30 years, and now look, yeah, yeah. da 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 so, It's not a rom-com. So yeah, but that, that's why I think that he's trying to bully this messy life into that. All I would say to him is, some things haven't changed. You are still married. You still have children. They're grown-up children, but they're still going to be... Uh, you know, they're not going to be thrilled that their their dad retired and just thought, oh, what can I do? Oh, I know. I'll have an affair. Yeah. It just seems... What if they take your wife's side and you never see them again? Well, they just... will. Yeah. I mean, I think you just haven't thought this through in any way, shape or form, Kelsa Prees. Um, you're 66 now. You're 63, th by the way. Oh, 63. Sorry. Yeah. I beg your pardon. I added two 33s together. Yeah. Um, you, I think you owe it to your wife to make an attempt. You say you retired and you're thinking of getting a part-time job. It's like, of course, you're under each other's feet because you've been working all this time and 
you're not making any effort anymore. Perhaps she's not either, but maybe you owe it to each other to attempt that as you go dotty into your dotage together. But also... For a huge life decision, this massive life decision to kind of... Because uh, I would think... Predicated uh, on a bumping into... into a, yeah, if you hadn't... What? If you hadn't bumped into her in the, you know, six items or less thing, you wouldn't be leaving your wife. It seems crazy. I think what you've got to do, Mark, is deal with the relationship you're in before you start messing around with another relationship. If you want to leave your wife, do that. But don't leave your wife just because there's this woman in the supermarket car park. My feeling is men invariably do not leave partners unless there's someone else lined up. I know that's a huge generalisation and people will be shouting at the radio, so I didn't, but... I just think he's got something else lined up. He's Something has come into his vision and that is what he's pinning all his hopes on. And that is a foolish thing to do, Yes, uh, Mark. And I would have thought you would have been clever enough to realise that. And also, I think what you've got to do, uh, Mark, is one, kind of go, OK, do I want to end my marriage? That's the first question before anything else. Do I want to end my marriage? If you think, yes, I do, I do want to end this marriage, then, all right, fine, have a dalliance with supermarket woman but be very aware that chances are that's not going to work out you didn't this kind of you know oh i love you i love you you didn't talk to each other for 30 years yeah and you only ended up talking because you bumped into each other in the supermarket so the chances of that relationship working are minuscule i, I mean would say. No and then you're going to be alone there- now do you want to be that do you want to be a 63 year old man living alone, your children are probably furious with you, your ex-wife should be very furious with you, and you've got supermarket lady, you know, knocking around. This is a classic... So you suddenly you've got to shop somewhere else. Yeah. How annoying is that? Yeah, you've got to go to a completely different supermarket. But there's no <laughs> I, mention... I hope they weren't shopping in Waitrose. There's no mention... <laughs> I would have thought he would have started this letter with, I've been with my wife for this long, blah, 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 blah. I have been thinking of leaving her for a while. We need to find our own... None of that. In this letter, it's just I bumped into the old lover, and now I'm thinking I'll go off with that. You know, it didn't. It clearly hadn't really occurred to you, and then you think, oh yeah, it'd be nice to have something exciting because I am quite bored with the old girl at home. Yes, and we, we don't really have much lockdown. in common. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm a bit cross with you, Mark. Frankly, but I don't know what the Virgin Radio well, listeners no, but will I, say. I, you, I think, but we all get it. We yes, get, we, we get the excitement of the frisson and the having the kiss outside the supermarket. That's lovely. Ugh, I'm imagining tongues. Ugh. <laughs> outside Aldi. <Ugh. laughs> Notice issue. I didn't big, say waitress. It's big issue. Yes, <laughs> I'm leaving my wife. <laughs> Uh, so I look, Mark. I just think this isn't something you can do casually, because there's no going back. So uh, think long and hard. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been one of these three people or the yeah. kids. You know. So I think there'll be a lot of insight into the damage that could be done, or maybe the rewards. I who you know. I would put money on him. You know, trundling back to his wife with his tail between his legs in a year. With his loyalty card. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. And my favourite responses will be receiving a bottle of Waitrose blended Scotch whiskey. Mmm, rich and warming, especially for Burns Night on Tuesday. You can try it neat, splash over ice, or mixed with ginger wine for a whiskey mat cocktail. May I suggest? Sir suggests. There you go. Anyway, uh, what should he do? He doesn't know what to do. We know what he's going to do, but he doesn't know <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. Shazza is in Swansea. Mark, don't get a part-time job. Work on your mar- marriage and do your shopping online. Yeah, I mean, really, <laughs> that could save you. 
Hilary is in Kilmalcolm. Am I the only one wondering why Mark has never seen Supermarket Lady for 30 years and now she's recently divorced as if by magic she bumps into him? Hello. Has she engineered this meeting? Declaring undying love after a chat in a supermarket also strikes me as a bit weird. Tread extremely carefully, Mark. Hilary, you are so wise. I mean, uh, yes, there are so many red flags in this whole story all over the place. Uh, well observed, Hilary. Helen and Tim, they're on their way to Leeds. We don't know where they are. They're on their way to Leeds. Most people take up a new hobby upon retiring. An affair isn't a hobby. <laughs> Try golf or a train set. Maybe mountain climbing. Yeah, guess who you'll bump into at the top of the mountain? Oh, hello. <laughs> I've always loved you. <laughs> Tim and Dorset. Oh, hang on. Tim and Dorset saying, Mark, do it. I got out of a lousy marriage, met a lovely lady. We had so much in common and I feel reborn. Having said that, my previous wife is a wonderful lady. We just drifted apart. All right, Tim. Thank you very much. There was a, two lives in, in that. I think the thing is, Tim, you left a marriage that was lousy and then you met a lovely lady. That is a world of difference to what Mark is considering uh, doing. Uh, thank you for all your feedback. I am going to award the blended Scotch whiskey, courtesy of Waitrose, to Hillary in Kilmalcolm and her CSI precision of picking through what actually went on in that supermarket. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Hey, welcome along, my first guest of the day. It's Adelio Adadio. Uh, who as this is exciting the responder <laughs> the responder is uh starts on monday uh, on yeah. bbc one so uh martin freeman's the responder uh you're rachel who is rachel how does she fit into the story so i um i play rachel hargreaves she is also a police night responder and she um gets placed as a partner with martin freeman's character chris against both of their desires <laughs> and wishes. Um, and night responders spend a lot of time in the car together, so they really don't like each other and they really have very different ways of policing, but they are stuck together in a car all night dealing with um, the streets of Liverpool, and it's crazy. Um, it's a lot of car acting. <laughs> I mean, you know, because actors, actors, you know, you you, you want to, uh, and on this line, should I walk over there? And I, no, no, you'll stay there. Yeah, just sit in the car. Yeah, I might open the glove compartment. That's, That's it. it. Just a little bit of that. Maybe the window. Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, is it hard to kind of get the various beats? Because it, 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 the acting has to be so precise when you're in a confined thing like that. Yeah, of course, it has to. You kind of have to be. Um, you have to concentrate and pay as much... Well, you, you should do that anyway, really, know, yeah, but yeah. part of your job. <laughs> but um, I think what's weirder is the fact that you're not driving the car. So for us, we've had a little pod on the top of the car that was controlling the car. And you're, you know that you're in no control of how this car's moving, when it's going to jolt, when it's going to go to the left or right kind of thing. So that's very strange. Yeah. And you kind of have to forget that and just obviously do your job. Um, or we had a low loader, which is a big sort of massive machine pulling us from the front. So all the cameras and all the crew are just sat on this low loader right in front of the dashboard as you're driving along. So I think that's what's weird, actually. And you can tell me, can you have your script on your lap? Uh, you can, but you see, I'm a professional, so I never did. 
<laughs> but you can definitely sneak it in there, I'm sure, yeah. Because yeah. apparently in those line of duty, those scenes, the big interrogation scenes, oh a lot gosh. of lap, a lot, of, yeah, oh my a lot of lap action. <laughs> I, I do not blame them. It's just proceed like so much, like so much information. I mean, as a consumer, I'm loving it. I'm like, yeah, give yeah, me yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. But for them, it's crazy. So back to the responder. So you filmed in Liverpool, yes, which should have been uh, a laugh riot and such fun, mm-hmm. but uh, not. Not like it was. Uh, obviously, we shot during lockdown, and um, it was completely quiet. And I have shot in Liverpool before, and it is one of my favourite cities to to stay in and live in for a while, especially at night because it really comes alive. But it was like a ghost town. Like, there yeah. was just nobody around. It just felt like... I was like, where's the Liverpool that I know and love? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess in terms of a filming perspective, that was great because there were no interruptions and we got on with it. But, yeah, I did miss that kind of Liverpool flair at night. And also, presumably, did it help getting into the mind of a night responder because it was all night shoots? You were, you were kind of living that life for mm-hmm. those months. 100%, because you get into sort of like... I mean, even if you uh, you you wrap at what I don't know three a.m. and you go and have a really good sleep till the next afternoon, you still wake up feeling slightly disorientated yeah. and slightly off kilter. And I think that does really help because that is the job they do every single night. Um, you know, kind of nocturnal, and and that does have an effect on the brain and the body. So yeah. And the script is. It, I love this story, Tony Schumacher. Is this this is his first produced thing? I think. Yeah, yeah. this is his his first his first uh, script, his first show. His I mean, he's he's a novelist, but he's never done TV before. I mean, that's amazing! Totally. Like, suddenly he's on BBC One. You, Martin Freeman. I mean, that's exciting. And was he on set a lot? Presumably he was. He well, do you know what he was? <laughs> he's in the back seat. <laughs> yeah, literally there. He was like, no, that's not. Can you not do it like that? Do it right. Do it right. No, um, he was around. He was available to us, but he was also in the trench with the scripts like he was writing he was um because i think episode i think a few of the uh, the 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 later episodes were still being written so he was really he was doing a lot of work he was available to us and writing at the same time and i remember thinking you're like and this is your first thing you're like amazing you're doing it all yeah he's incredible and obviously he was a night responder so he was available to tell you things were there other night responders on the on the shoot as kind of consultants as advisors so we didn't have like particular night responders but we did have um, police consultants with us on set just to tell us like things like how to handcuff somebody properly and how to like spray gas properly like you can't just do it there's like a way all the fun fun parts of the job yeah (laughs) (laughs) basically um, no, yeah. So we had, um, yeah, we did have people on hand to kind of keep us on track. And did stuff. you have proper handcuffs, or did you have those plastic ties? No, we had proper handcuffs. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel, I feel, yeah. Budget cuts. You see a lot. <laughs> you see a lot of those, those kind of little, those little grippy plastic ties. We and, didn't have real gas though. Oh, no. good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No wonder Liverpool was in lockdown. They're filming. They've got gas. Now you didn't want to be a police person, but you did. You law was the the thing you tried to do first, or did do first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. I had already started acting when I went to uni to do law, 
but I was sort of doing it kind of on the side. And I don't know, I just really wanted to study law at uni. I I wasn't forced to do it. So your parents were there with a stick saying, you better... Do no, I mean, they were with a stick saying, you have to go to university. Oh, OK. But I did choose <laughs> law. But then when it came to the point, like, after you finish uni and you graduate and stuff, and it's like, well, if you're going to be a real lawyer, you have to go and get an LPC. And I was like, oh, no, this isn't just, like, reading books anymore and debates in, in lectures, it's... This is real. Oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. Guys, no. So um, I uh, just went acting full time because obviously that is what I love yeah. and wanted to do. But I do. I actually like um, like books and like education and stuff. I'm such a nerd. And stuff like that. <laughs> and yeah. Stuff like that. You know, I am cool there, guys. It I never promise. goes to waste. It no. never goes to waste. No. Because on The Responder, you must have been working with lots of people who was their very, very, very first job. They'd done absolutely nothing before yeah. this. Yeah, 100%. Um, Emily Fenn and Josh Finan. I think Josh had done some things before, but this is his first big TV thing. And um, but But you wouldn't know. They're, no, no, they're so oh good. Well, I think because they're so going. close to it, they're so real. It's yeah, a, it, yeah. yeah. Uh, Josh, um, so his character Marco is actually oh one of my favorite characters. I I would watch him and think you must know Marco. That's how good. Like you must know this person because it's so specific and so beautifully crafted. Um, I, I yeah, I was. It's it, oh, they're both brilliant in it. Yeah, yeah, and what an ama- I mean, an amazing kind of calling card for them. Presumably they will go on to do lots of things yes, after this. 100%. Yeah. Well, I believe so, 100%, yeah. And I haven't seen the final episode, so is it left open, the responder? What do you mean? Well, as in, you know, will you be driving around in that car with Martin again? Oh, I should hope so, <laughs> oh, yes. <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope so, I hope so. We don't have any confirmation or anything yet, but... Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It has hit written all over it. Uh, no, because it is it's really good because the because the, I like the way they, they use the backstories and yet there's a, a, you know, a driving plot as well. It's, yeah. It, I mean, it's incredible that it's his first thing. I think it's amazing. But also I think that the fact that this these are experiences or um algamations of um people that he's met with or had experiences with you can you can feel that in the writing and on the screen i think it's i feel like it's unfettered i feel like it's um there's no filter on it i feel like it feels very human and very natural and i think maybe that's why um well i think it's beautiful maybe that's why and was your character based on a real person no, so there's not one character that's based on one real person. It's kind of like a mashup of all these people that he's yeah. kind of had experiences with. Um, yeah. So you didn't, yeah, you didn't have that awkward thing of kind of, oh, it's you. No, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, could you imagine? No. <laughs> No, and, uh, I didn't. And what was great was, so you got to, you, you were working during lockdown. There you were in Liverpool. Da, da, da. But since then, you have managed to get back on stage. Yeah, yeah, I did. I um, was at the Royal Court doing a play called Is God Is. Um, it's an American play. Uh, it is mad and uh, beautiful and crazy and dark and hilariously funny. Um, it's about two uh, women, two black women from the South in America who meet their mum for the first time in 18 years. They're 21. They have burns, she has burns, and she tells them that the reason they have these burns is that their dad set them all on fire when they were three and then she sends them off on a, on a mission to go and kill him. And, wow. Yeah, that so, sounds like a movie. 
it oh my gosh it's so it's very uh, tarantino-esque the colors are super bright um it's like kind of western like kind of funk kind of like spaghetti western kind of uh funk kind of afro pop like it's got, there's so much in it it's 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 insane it's crazy wow yeah. will we see it again or is it done done um i don't know it might be on again in america but I don't know if it'll be on again. I don't know. I don't know. I, w- I would hope so. Yeah. Because one thing I said was that I love being in it, but I want to watch it. Oh, oh, so, yeah. you don't, oh so you don't want to be in it again. You just want to... I would be... I would definitely be in it again. You, but I also want to watch it because it's cool. Yeah, understudy run. You can have a look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be fine. That'll be fine. Uh, Adelio, Adelio, uh, starring in The Responder, uh, which starts this Monday, 9 o'clock on BBC One, uh, and also available on iPlayer. Listen, very best of luck to you. What an exciting time Thank for you. you. Waiting since June for this to oh, finally hit the gosh, telly, and finally. now it's there. Yay! Yay! <laughs> very best of luck to you, and thank you so much for coming to see us. Thank you. Take Thanks for care. having me. Cheers. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to welcome my second guest of the day. Uh, basically, multi-million best-selling author, Kate Moss. Uh, people love you, Kate Moss. Uh, they do. I mean, honestly, anyone who knew you were coming on the show were kind of like, oh, oh I love her books. Anyway, you, you've got the paperback of part two of your big Huguenot. It's a trilogy. It's four now. Oh, four because I haven't now. got on so well. I'm only in 1594. <laughs> and you're covering 300 years. You yes, promised exactly. us. You promised us 300 years. I did, exactly, but I I haven't got very far in two books, so my husband pointed out there's no way of getting to 1862 in three books now. Yes, I must, I must say, when you when you open up the tears and realise only ten years has I know, passed, I'm going to jump 200 years after this one. Yeah, I mean, it's the city of tears. It's it's so lovely to be here because. This is my last uh, gig for this book. And everything about the hardback and the paper has happened in lockdown. And I like a chat, as you know, and I like going out and about and reading readers. And I've done none of it. Oh. I've just done, you know, radio and and, uh, and all of these kind of things. So it feels really special to be here. And I was just saying, you know, I came on for the first one, Burning Chambers. And because of your brilliant listeners, the book went to number one. Woo-hoo! So all of you are li- listening today, <laughs> go and buy a copy. No, 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 no. Well, do. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and it's such a shame you haven't met list- uh, um, readers because the response to this book has been terrific. It's been wonderful. It's it's set between 1572 and 1594 and it's really a Sophie's Choice story so it's a family that my French family if you haven't read number one it doesn't matter but if you have you'll get a little bit more out of it yeah. um, and they are deciding whether to go to Paris for the royal wedding and it's the wedding that's going to bring peace to France and anyone who knows their history will know that what happens instead is the most notorious massacre um, of the wars of religion and, and this is the St Bartholomew's massacre which I think a lot of people know the name I knew the name yeah, yeah. but I had no idea the scale of it. Oh, my lord. I mean, it was... It, the wedding happened, which was which great, and it had been brokered between these two great queens, you know, Jeanne d'Albret and Catherine de Medici, and then mysteriously before the wedding, uh, the mother of the, of the groom died, and there were lots of rumours that she'd been poisoned by Catherine de Medici. Um, and Catherine de Medici is this great epic figure of this time, but, of course, I write the stories of... People like us, as it were. No offence, yeah. but not the kings and the queens. You might be indeed a king. No, no, um, no. <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, but I am not a queen. Um, so I write those stories. And, of course, the thing about historical fiction is it's not just about the history. It's about what's happening to my lot. So when I st- started writing City of Tears, I didn't know what was going to happen to my family. I knew that they would have this epic crisis and they'd be there to witness 
the slaughter of 3,000 people and the flight from Paris. But I didn't know who was going to make it. I didn't know who was going to survive. And as I started writing it, it turned into a Sophie's Choice. And it's at the heart of it is, in the middle of that terrible night, a child goes missing. And what do you do? Do you stay in order to find that child? Or do you abandon that child to save everybody else? And I wasn't expecting this to be the story. But of course, it's turned out to be a very modern story in a way yeah. because then how do you live for the rest of your life not knowing if your your child is still alive um it was hard to write actually and you obviously love france you've got a home there you're very kind of steeped in 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 french history uh, this book moves us out of france what was that like researching a place you didn't know as well well i love amsterdam and Amsterdam is the city of tears of the title and it's where many, many French Huguenots fled uh, to escape persecution. And I love the fact that because tiny little Netherlands took in all the refugees, they became a world superpower because the Huguenots arrived with all of their skills and they were lawyers and engineers and doctors and bookbinders and lace makers and all of these things. And I've always felt that there was a story waiting for me in Amsterdam. You always go there on a book tour, as you as you probably know. And, uh, you know, there's this famous hotel called the Ambassade and everybody who is an author stays there and you can see the first editions of Hemingway and, you know, and you, it makes you feel super swanky when you're there. Um, and I'd always felt there was a story, but for me, it's always about place and it's the whispering in the landscape and the idea that there are characters kind of round every canal corner going, come over here, Kate. You could... I've got a story for you. So the City of Tears begins in Amsterdam, of course, with a nun, and she's there and she's got a terrible decision to make and she leaves, you know, the, the beautiful place, place Begeinhof, which you can still see, this convent, and she goes down Kalverstraat and right into the heart of the Red Light District, which, you know, uh, was the Red Light District then. She was obviously not plying her wares no. so much. But needless <laughs> to say, she doesn't survive the first chapter because, because it's a high body count in my books. Um, but it was lovely and I was there for a month when I was writing it. Um, I had a fellowship at the Dutch Literature Foundation and I don't normally get things like like that, you know, because I don't, I'm not a prize winning author, I'm a, a storyteller. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to say. Um, she can afford a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I like, yeah, I like stories. You know, that's it. It's it's like, is the author, uh, the reader going to be <gasps> gasping and turning the pages? That's what I'm trying to do. Um, but so I, again, I felt super swanky being there. Being like, in terms of the Brit British connection, do the Huguenots come to the east end of London later yeah. than this? No. At no, the same time? Same sort of time. It We're still England at that stage, um, obviously, because it's still Elizabeth on the throne. And... Um, a lot of Huguenots came here and they had been coming from quite early on. So the uh, the Huguenot church in Soho Square, just in the far corner, most people never see it. And then you, when you've seen it, it's like, oh, that's so magnificent. And that was started to be built in 1555. So really quite early on, the first wave of persecution. My lot... Uh, go to Amsterdam because they are part of that trade and the quartet of books which will be 300 years will you know end up in South Africa because I just loved this piece of research to discover that in part the Huguenots are responsible for the South African wine industry and that my friend <laughs> is research worth doing yeah that's research right <laughs> <Yes>. there <laughs> uh, the city of tears the second in her we now know four book series what's it called uh, quartet quartet is quartet. what I'm going for at the moment uh, is that now in paperback but it sounds like you're not even going to get into a quartet well no no I am I absolutely am. I'm do. I'm. <laughs> I'm going away um, to start book three, um, and I'm going to have to write it quite fast because I'm a bit behind. But I know. I really know what that book is, and I am jumping forward 
quite a bit. Not, okay. Not, and, yeah. and, and are you jumping forward because going to South Africa, it's quite hard. Is there? Is it harder to do research in a country like that where actually there isn't the archive, you know, it was all so dusty and rough when they got there? Yeah, I mean, it is. But also, book three, which I can't tell you the title of yet, um, because I don't know it. You know, it'll yeah. come to me. Um, but it's set, a lot of it's set on a ship. Oh, um, okay. So it's a very different kind of bit of research because it's that, you know, there, there's four books in my quartet, surprisingly enough. <laughs> you're so, I, I'm, you're on, so wacky. I'm on fire this morning. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Um, and they are, broadly speaking, because Four Quartets is my favourite series of poems, following those things. Okay. So we've had, uh, you know, sort of fire, we've had uh, water. water. The next one is air. Um, and the final one will be earth you know, the land. Um, so I will be leaving Amsterdam and going to the Canary Islands and then landing in South Africa. So I have been, I've done most of my research in South Africa and indeed the Canary Islands already. Okay. Mm. And, and what, is, what is there to research, if you know what I mean? Uh, is it letters? Is it journals? What's, what's, left, what's been left behind well, I, in those areas? It's, there isn't very much of that. You're absolutely right in terms of archive. Huguenot history is pretty well documented, um, particularly by Americans, actually. Uh, Huguenot settlers in America, there's amazing work there. In South Africa, there is the Huguenot Memorial Museum, which is probably the, the best um, in Franschhoek, in, in South Africa, in the Winelands, which is where uh, my the descendants of my family will be ending up. Um, and I'm afraid that goes back to the fact that I used to love reading Ryder Haggard. My dad used to read me Ryder Haggard when I was a child. Um, and that kind of, you know, going into the deep, uh, deep mountains of, of Southern Africa and all of these things. And so I've done all of that research and those archives are good. But it's more that, you know, I know because readers are so kind and they get in touch on social media and they, they send emails and all of these things, that one of the things people seem to like about my books is that sense of the texture of life. So when you're reading The City of Tears, I, I hope people are not going to be going... Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that people had buckles on their shoes in 1594. <laughs> what I hope they're thinking is, God, just what would I have been like? How yeah. would I have lived in those circumstances? So that's my, what my job is, is to put real life on the page. So that as people turn the page, they think, God, could I have done that? Could I have travelled all that way? Could I have survived in that environment? Um, because the human heart doesn't change. You know, my mother in the City of Tears, her heart is broken in the way that anybody's heart would be broken now if they lost a child. But what people don't know is how it would be to live. What would it be like to wear those clothes and eat that food and live in that kind of environment? And so that's what I have to get to the bottom of. And of course, that's why I need to go to places and why I've been doing a lot of nautical research and reading books about lady pirates. Ah. Because, you know, there's a bit of, you know, swashbuckling yeah. going on in book three. But also, is it interesting, I think the last two years... We've done that thing of we've lived through some history. I know, I know. And, it's, and it has revealed people how they would behave that in a certain situation. Is exactly right. When I was first uh, doing historical fiction, people, I'd say, well, we don't know we're living through history. You can't say that now because we know this is what history is. It's, it's here and it's now. Yeah, we live through an event. We, yeah. An event. <laughs> yeah. City of lockdown. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, city of Tears. Five. <laughs> yeah, city of Tears. Number five. Yeah, it's not a quartet. Uh, the City of Tears is out now in paperback. Uh, Kate Moss, good luck with book three and four. Thank you so much for coming in to see us. Welcome back into the world. Thank you very much. <laughs> Still to come, we speak to novelist Sophie Hanna about her new crime thriller, The Couple at the Table. And again, we're playing the Waitrose Checkout Challenge. But first, we're crossing over to the kitchen to see what Martha has been up to this weekend. This, well now, if you know, you know. Uh, this, of course, the theme to Paddington, and it suggests marmalade is in the air. <laughs> and telling us all about marmalade is show chef Martha Carlson. Hello. Hello. Hi. So, marmalade, why now? What's, what's so special about now? Why are you making it right now? So, there's almost two reasons. First is that marmalade, especially English marmalade, is made with Seville oranges. And oh, yeah. these get shipped across the channel from Spain, um, grown in Seville, as you might imagine. But they grow them just for us, basically. Nowhere else, really, in the world eats these very bitter oranges. They're designed basically just to be turned into marmalade. So they grow them just for us and ship them just for us. And the second reason, I think, is a bit of sunshine. It's January. We need a bit sunshine of golden, in a jar. golden jars of sunshine. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, and how this window of opportunity, when this harvest happens, how long does it last for? So it's not long, kind of a month, maybe maximum two months, you'll be able to find these Seville oranges in the supermarkets. You can make marmalade with regular oranges, but you'll find that it's so sweet because you're adding lots of sugar to get that preserve and to keep it for a long old time. Yeah. You don't want to be using really, really sweet oranges or you're basically making a jam. But marmalade is very unique to us. We've been making it in Britain since the 1500s. That's the first recorded time of it. And oh, okay. Kate Moss will love this later, or she'll be off. <laughs> Her next novel, <laughs> The Marmalade Wars. Um, but tell me this. So uh, if I picked up a Seville orange by accident mm. and went, ooh, an orange, I'm going to eat that, would, it, would I hate it? Would it be horrible? Yeah, you'd know about it. it oh, OK. It would be incredibly bitter, and they have a really thick skin, so they're really kind of not good for eating. You would really find it unpleasant. But because of that really thick skin, it means they've got loads of pectin, which is what makes the marmalade set and gives it that lovely texture. Pectin. It's a science word, ladies and gentlemen. This is a sciencey morning. <laughs> wow. Uh, but now, so I see marmalade there, but I also, with my little eye, mm. I see some delicious-looking cookies. What are they? So these are chocolate orange cookies. Um, I've written a whole column on um, citrus recipes for Waitrose, which comes out next week. And these kind of marmalade orange cookies with chocolate and all sorts of lovely things are in there. Chocolate and orange do go so well together, don't they? They do. They're a proper marriage made in heaven. And I love the kind of bitterness of the marmalade and also kind of the secret of putting something like marmalade into a cookie dough means it's so chewy and kind of syrupy which I think is really nice well happily I've got my Steve Denyer coffee in my hand <laughs> so I will enjoy uh, one of the cookies and we'll find out how to make the marmalade and how to make the cookies oh Martha okay here I come here I come sugar high alert ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was like cookie monster just wolfing through those cookies uh, alright uh, Martha's here she's got uh, in season Seville orange marmalade and chocolate orange cookies let's start with the marmalade by the way you know does it really taste better if you make it yourself uh, I think you get to control what goes into it and because it's a a long process. You really feel every time you spread it on your toast, you think, I made that. <laughs> <laughs> I made I that. Made that. <laughs> okay, so uh, off you go. So marmalade is a proper slow afternoon. So it's a Sunday afternoon activity for sure. It will take you a couple of hours to get this spot on. But once you've done it, you'll make about six jars from your batch and it will last all year long. You can give it as gifts. It's a really nice little thing to give as a gift. Um, so you want to take your Seville oranges, cut them all in half, juice them, 
take out the middle and save all those kind of it looks horrible but save all the middle bits and the pips of the orange because that's where all the pectin is and put that into a little muslin cloth (laughs) slice up your peel really finely this is a bit that takes a long time so put on some tv or the radio or something and you know let yourself go and where are you (laughs) are you thick cut thin cut I've gone for thin cut because I think it's nicer and also it will speed up the process slightly because you haven't got to wait for as long for that peel to soften. So once you cut... Can you do it with no peel or does the peel add something to it? I think you probably need the peel for the setting agent. Okay, fair enough. I don't know for certain. Okay. No, no, I just don't know. No, 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 because I I do like... If there's no peel, I feel a bit cheated. Yeah, Yeah. just like orange juice on your (laughs) your toast. (laughs) So once you've got all your peel chopped up, stick in the orange juice and all those bits, leave it to soak for two hours before you add in your sugar. And then the preservation sugar goes in. You want to boil it until it reaches 105 degrees on a sugar thermometer. Oh, yes. <laughs> or you can do that trick where you put a coaster into the... Oh, not a coaster, sorry. A, like, tea saucer into the freezer and you can check the set on there. If you fancy making marmalade, I'd recommend fully reading the recipe because it's got a few little scientific steps. But then once you've done that, got it to the right temperature, you just jar it up and it will last until the following year. You know the way normally you make things sound easy? Yeah, that... <laughs> There's no way of making this sound easy. That sounded really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But listen, the Seville oranges are there. And if you've got an afternoon and you want to experiment, go for it. Exactly. And then the cookies are the opposite of the marmalade in that they are extremely simple. And you can use shop-bought marmalade for these. You don't have to make your own from scratch just to make the cookies. And they are just creaming sugar, butter, cocoa powder, all in one pot, all at the same time. An egg, marmalade to make it chewy, zest of an orange... Mix it all up together, add in some chocolate chips, into the fridge for a bit, and then into the oven, 12 minutes, and your cookies are ready. And, oh, warm. So <laughs> delicious. We all feel so spoilt. Uh, we've had warm cookies this morning. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, if you want those recipes in full, you can go to our Instagram account, at Virgin Radio UK. Stab away there, and you'll be led to the receipt, and you can make those. Uh, tomorrow, sweet, savoury, more oranges? Something savoury for Burns Night. Ooh. Mm. Is it haggis? You have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll see you tomorrow, Martha. Thank you very much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Here she comes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. It's uh, Burns Night on Tuesday night, and uh, Martha is cooking something in celebration of uh, that. What have you got for us? I am indeed. So it's not what you might have been expecting. So no, it's, it's got not. haggis inside, but it is a very much a Turkish treat today. So we've got some baked haggis manta with garlic yogurt, melted butter, pine nuts, and a few lovely spices on there as well. I'm sure some Scottish people have just thrown their listening device out the window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What has so, she done what? with our haggis? <laughs> what does that stupid woman know? What is she doing? Uh, so uh, who came up with this idea? So this is a recipe by food writer Gilly Bazan. Um, and she is Turkish and Scottish. So I feel like she has the credibility to have yeah. done this with the haggis. No, <laughs> and this, I yes. am her messenger. I am so bringing obviously this food. is keeping everyone in her household happy. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and is it is it difficult? Um, I'm going to just go with yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to butter this up. <laughs> How long? Is this harder or easier than marmalade? Um, it's shorter, but more involved. Okay. By the way, uh, we've had so many people uh, re- responding to Bob, because I've got a thought, what 
moron is going to make marmalade. <laughs> you know, Martha might, but everyone else is just going to buy it. Oh, no, Graham, shut up. So many people are buying uh, sort of sack loads of full oranges oh, and making brilliant. marmalade. Uh, marmalade Martin from Norfolk, he texted in yesterday, said it was runny. Thanks for the tips. It's still runny. He's made a second batch of <gasps> oh, runny marmalade. No. I know. Oh, do you want me to give him some tips right now? Oh, yeah, go on then. A quick, quick, what's, what's, what's your number one tip for so stopping it to be runny? If it's runny when you put it on the little saucer, bring it back onto the heat, back up to a really rolling boil. It's not just a little bit hot, like very hot. Five more minutes, then test it again and keep doing that for up to probably half an hour and then stop after that because... It's failed. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's a disaster. Probably a disaster. Your, your, your pot has boiled dry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I liked it. I went back for more. Yes, I did. <laughs> Our lovely Burns Night special. It's baked haggis. Are you saying mante? Mante. I believe that's how it's pronounced, but I'm not... So apologies to our Turkish friends <laughs> yes, if myself and Martha <laughs> are mangling that. Uh, and it's served with garlic, yogurt, melted butter, pine nuts, a bulbiber. Bulbiber? Yes. Paul Bieber and mint. That's the sort of chilli we were talking about. I only it just is, learned yes, this this a morning. a nice mild chilli, so nothing too spicy, but nice warming. warming and I went in for one of these, and then I liked it so much I had to go back for another one. Uh, and uh, they are delicious. I, I think if you want, if you're thinking I'm going to do traditional Burns Night on Tuesday night, I was saying probably you won't finish it all uh, this would be a very good thing for leftover haggis absolutely yes a traditional Turkish manta are made with minced lamb which is spiced and obviously haggis is essentially minced lamb which is spiced so the filling element of this is super simple it's literally take the haggis warm it up that's what that's what makes the middle of these lovely dumplings so you could use leftover okay, I could haggis do that. I could do that okay left- <laughs> I've got my leftover haggis I've heated it up boom <laughs> Then, this pastry sounds exhausting. Well, it's a, more of a pasta dough, like a noodle dough. So we're just it's not got many ingredients. Eggs, flour, water, salt. Mm-hmm. Um, knead it like you're making bread and then rest it. So it's not ridiculously complicated, but it's more of a... It's more of an advanced cooking skill. It's not so much you're just throwing it all in <laughs> in a uh, bowl. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, and is that about the rolling out? Is that the very difficult bit? The rolling out, making it all not fall apart. The shaping is the part which I would say is the most challenging, but it is also fun. And they don't have to be perfect. If you make them for your family, they're not going to say, "Well, that one's not perfectly symmetrical." And supposedly in Turkey, I was reading about this this morning. Oh, yeah. The smaller the manta the more kind of highly regarded you are as a guest because it's harder to make small ones oh, right. than big ones. So yours are probably rather gigantic. Really? <laughs> I apologise. It's not how I view you, they were They were bite-sized <laughs> in my world. <laughs> but I think they make them I really only, cute. I only, cut them in half, I only cut them in half to seem polite. That, that is really just, I could damn those in one. Um, so, okay. So you, so you let that rest. Yes. And then you roll it out, which is the hard bit. And then yes. you cut it. And obviously there must be a shape. You've got to cut it in a particular yes. shape. So cut it into squares. Then you put a dollop of your haggis in the middle. And then you make these little square parcel shapes. A bit like a ravioli, but square. Mm-hmm. Um, they go into the oven to bake for about 15 minutes. Whilst you're doing that, you make this lovely garlic yogurt. And the rest of it is really straightforward. So you want yogurt, combine that with garlic and lemon juice. Stir that up and that's going to be your dressing. And then we toast some pine nuts butter in until it goes foamy add a little bit of mint and a little bit of that polby bear spice um, and that's a really nice topping the chicken stock goes over your dumplings just for the final half um, final 15 minutes whilst they're in the oven so okay. once we have first 15 minutes second 15 minutes with chicken stock and they soak that all up which is why they're so flavoursome because they've got a lovely haggis and they've absorbed all wow. the chicken stock and then you just arrange them on a little plate and you're good to go and Bob's your haggis <laughs> uh, now uh, tell me this can you buy that pastry ready made in the Waitrose <laughs> You probably can't. Oh, can I actually don't think you can. I don't Why? think. I think they do a lot of things, don't they? Ready yeah. made doughs and stuff. I Come think pasta, on, wait, not to... <laughs> Rose. Make our lives easier. 
Uh, so listen, uh, I think if if you're if you, uh, yeah if you're up for a cooking challenge yes. and you've got this haggis in the house anyway, then why not try them? They are delicious. They are really really good. They've got a bit heat in them, yeah. but, but they're not too hot. They're really delicious. I and would you say. could use vegetarian haggis if you didn't want them to be meaty, so they'll suit everyone. True that, or just tell people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, don't do that. That would be bad. <laughs> uh, to get the full recipe, you simply go to our uh, Instagram account at Virgin Radio UK and stab away there and you'll get the uh, receipt. Are you having traditional haggis on Tuesday, Martha? Oh, do you know what? I think I might. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'll make these again. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think you will. <laughs> You've made them once. <laughs> you enjoyed it, but you're not doing it again. Well, I'll raise a glass of uh, scotch to you on Tuesday night, Martha, and I'll see you next weekend. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. It is time to meet my guest of the day. She is a Sunday Times and New York Times bestselling author, published in 49 languages, 51 territories, and she brings us her new one today. It's called The Couple at the Table. Her name is Sophie Hanna. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for seeing you. Uh, So... The couple at the table. This is a, a, such a good idea. Uh, what are you telling people? How much can you tell people about this book? Uh, well, I can tell people the premise. Um, so basically, uh, the book is set at a couple's only resort. It's not specifically a honeymoon resort, but it basically is. It's very, very posh, very, very beautiful. And a woman called Jane is on her honeymoon and she receives uh, an anonymous note saying, beware of the couple at the table nearest to yours. And when she goes to dinner that night, the tables have all been moved and the only free table where she and her new husband can sit is right at the centre of a circle of tables. So there is no table nearest to theirs. So immediately she's uh, worried by the anonymous note, but also thinking, like, I've been given a kind of warning... But the note is effectively meaningless if there is no table, uh, if there is no couple any nearer than any of the other couples. So that's sort of the very opening mystery. But basically, she is murdered that night. And the police soon establish that the only person or people who could possibly have killed her must be someone who was there at the resort. It's a classic. That night. It's a classic. Because nobody could have got in from outside the resort. And I won't go into details of how they know that, but they know that. They've established that beyond doubt. And yet, as soon as they start to look into the activities of the resort on that night, they discover that nobody inside the resort could have killed her either. And then, suddenly, it seems that they don't know anything at all because she certainly did get killed. And if no-one from outside could have done it and no-one from inside could have done it, there is an obvious problem. There <laughs> is. And, and I, when, you, when you come up... So you've got this idea of a closed world, you know, so that is the mystery. Do you kind of go... Oh, do you do that thing of uh, finding out why everyone can't do it? So... You put yourself in that position and then you figure out, okay, so how could this have happened? Or do you know what happened and then close it down so the police can't see it and the reader can't see it? Yeah, well, in theory, it could presumably happen either way round. So I can only really speak for me in this particular book. What happened in the case of this book was that I knew who had killed her and why. 
from pretty much from the start. Oh, okay. Um, it, it's very weird the way in which ideas come to me because I'm not really aware of what order the bits come in. But from very early on, I knew who the murder victim was, why she was killed, who the killer was. I also knew why several other people had very strong motives for killing her as well. So there are many suspects with very powerful um, motives. And that all came first. And it was only as I started to... I mean, the, the sort of locked room element of the mystery... I mean, it's not a locked room because they're not in a room, but yeah. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's basically a conundrum because nobody who was there could have done it. Nobody could have got in to do it. But that element, which is structurally incredibly satisfying to write wasn't a part of the original idea. That oh, sort of okay. emerged gradually. I knew the motives of the of the murderer and, and the non-murderers. And then I drew a map of the resort really, really early on in the evolution of this book. I sat down with a, a pad and some colour-y pens and I drew a map of the resort with the sort of boundary around it and all the bits. And then I started thinking, well, where would this person be and where would that person be? And it was almost as though I I just sort of gradually came to realise, well, the way this story is unfolding, it will look to the police as though nobody can have done it. But of course, they'll be wrong because X, Y, and Z. Because you know. Because somebody has. If some, if there's a murder, there has to be a murder. So that just sort of emerged organically. And this is actually one of the most fun things about plotting a crime novel. So much of what you end up loving about the plot and thinking. You know, that is so elegant and neat and all of this wasn't something you thought of originally or something you can remember thinking of ever. It just suddenly gradually emerged and you realise that it's a thing you can bring in because it's just evolved naturally from the bits you have created. So it always does feel as though there's a kind of magic element to the composition of the story. And I remember interviewing you before and you were talking about how it was one of your um, uh, Christie books, one of those, and it, you talked about how you went through property uh, websites yeah. to find the big house. Do you know this resort? Does this re resort exist? Uh, that's such a great question. This precise resort does not exist, but, but. it was inspired <laughs> by... Um, through a, in, in Not in connection with the book at all... I found myself becoming aware of a UK-based resort with... It wasn't a big resort. It had, like, maybe between, like, seven and 12 luxury cottages, very exclusive, very posh. And I found myself looking at a map of that resort for a reason that had nothing to do with writing. And I thought, oh, what if my new plot were to be set in a place like this... And then that added another element. And then I thought, OK, well, if it's going to be in a place like this, the one thing I know for sure it is it cannot be this place because I didn't actually want it. I wanted it to be much kind of more luxurious and with heated swimming pools. And the actual resort it was based on was more of an ordinary sort of here are some cottages, there's a field, you know, <laughs> no fun, luxury everyone. here. Yeah. Sort of cosy but not luxurious. And I wanted it to be super, super luxurious. And I also wanted it to be not recognisable as the one I'd based it on. So I then set about finding lots of resort maps. If you Google resort map, so many <laughs> results come up. So then I looked at loads of resort maps and then I thought, how would I, like if I was actually designing this resort to be a real holiday resort, how would I design it? And I basically drew that very crudely on my little yeah, bit yeah. of paper and coloured it in. 
And it was the most amazing way to start writing a book because as I was creating that map, everything else started coming to me. It was though, it was as though I was like, I was actually making it real, even though it was just a silly sketch on a bit of paper. But I felt as though I was really creating this resort. And then the characters started to come alive and I started to have story ideas. So I am planning for future novels to start with a, a sketch on a bit of paper because it really was a, an oh, amazing way of sort of kickstarting the creative process. Like, that's amazing, Sophie, after writing so many books that you've yeah. stumbled upon this thing. Yeah, and I would never have thought of it because I don't think of myself as a... A, an arty, painty, droy person at all. I don't think of myself, well, I'm yeah. not a visual artist at all, so it would never occur to me to get into a book in that way. And in the classic of this genre, there's normally kind of, you know, uh, a, a wealthy widow, that kind of thing. When did you know, Did you? it was always going to be couples only? It was always going to be couples only. As soon as I knew that it was going to happen on a resort, I wanted it to be couples only because... Um, I didn't want, you know, if, if it wasn't couples only, there would be some families there. Then there'd be lots of, you know, children oh, oh characters. God, they all need names. I, they, they all need names. They all need childcare provision. They all need bags of toys carried around so that they're entertained all day while their parents commit murder. Um, and I thought, no, we, so if we don't have children, then it's just as streamlined as possible. Very wise. Uh, but, but interesting, I mean, it, it's so funny because... Neither the resort nor the sort of closed community aspect was what actually... The, the first impulse for this book, which I can tell our listeners about, because it's not a spoiler in any way. Okay. So, so at the resort, when Jane is murdered, obviously her husband, with whom she's on honeymoon, William. he's there, yeah. William. But another person who is there at the same resort during William and Jane's honeymoon is Lucy, who is William's ex-wife. Now, William and Jane and Lucy and her new partner, Pete, are actually friends. So since William and Lucy split up, the two couples have done that very civilised, slightly strange thing of becoming friends. Um, so Lucy and Pete are there as well. And when Jane is murdered, there's a, there's a moment when William basically accuses Lucy. He, it's almost like he forgets that she's now with Pete and they're good friends. Obviously, he thinks she might have done it because someone must have done yeah. it. So he says to her, he accuses her because she's his ex-wife. He kind of thinks she's the, you know, or he seems to think, because obviously we don't know if he's the murderer or yeah. not, but he says to her, well, it must have been you. You're my ex-wife. Who else would have such a strong <laughs> motive for murdering my present wife? And Lucy so objects to this not because she thinks he shouldn't have suspected it but because she thinks to accuse her like that with no evidence is completely out of order and so weirdly and that that's just a tiny part of the whole story and yeah, investigation yeah. but the very very first spark of inspiration i had that made me create this whole story was I was thinking about the moral difference between suspecting someone of something and accusing someone openly of something. And the reason that occurred to me is because, completely unconnected to honeymoons or anything romantic, I had received a really vicious letter from someone I thought was a close friend, actually. Clearly, she wasn't. She no. turned out to be an unhinged narcissist. But anyway... Um, 
I had received this letter accusing me really viciously of some things I just hadn't done like at all. And I remember thinking, imagine sending out such a definite letter saying you have done these things that I totally hadn't done. When you have zero evidence because the things haven't happened. happened, And then I, I thought, there's actually a difference between... Because we've all been in situations where we think, I wonder if so-and-so did that. But to actually present it as fact and accuse... So I started to think about just the moral difference yeah. between thinking, like, I've got a funny feeling so-and-so has done that thing and actually declaring it as if it's a fact. So this is what... This was the, the whole start of the book. So William does that to Lucy and Lucy thinks, is, this, is he doing this because he really thinks I've done it? Or is he doing it because he's done it, because he killed Jane? And what better way to look to innocent than yeah. to violently accuse me? So the whole plot kicks off, really, when Lucy is getting a bit bored by the fact that the police seem not to be solving this. Yeah. Uh, and Simon Waterhouse, my detective character, who is obsessed with solving this case, but he's having no luck. He has had no luck for six months up to the point when the book starts. Yeah. And Lucy decides this won't do. She needs to know, even though she doesn't want to get back with William under any circumstances, she just does need to know whether he murdered Lucy, uh, whether he <laughs> murdered Jane or not. Um, and so when he comes round and accuses her of murdering Jane, she's like, this has gone on long enough, enough we have to know. So she then kickstarts the police again. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that by the end of the novel, you do find out who murdered Jane and Phew. why. Good. Don't tell us. <laughs> uh, Harriet Edwards has been in touch asking about your poetry. Do you still write poetry? Because that was your first love, wasn't it? Yes, and I was pretty much exclusively a poet for about the first 10 years of my sort of serious wow. writing life. So I do still write poetry, and recently I've written three or four new poems, which is very exciting. But for the past four or five years, my poetry writing muscles as it were have gone into writing the lyrics for two musicals that I have co-written with a composer friend of mine Annette Armitage we have co-written together two murder mystery musicals wow one of which is being made into a movie later this year stop it seriously <laughs> Honestly, is it really, really is. Is that the mystery of Mr E? The mystery of Mr E is being filmed in the summer and the autumn and we think hopefully released um, the following year, spring spring 23. Like in the, in the cinemas or on a streaming platform? We, we haven't yet decided. So it's all... Not only have we not made all those decisions yet, but also we haven't announced it yet or done the big PR campaign. So there's a lot of unknowns. Um but it's it's just so exciting. So that's the, fantastic. The, so it's kind of knives out with music. Well, the way I, I mean, yes, actually, yes, that is a brilliant way of describing it. The way I have been describing it is, if you imagine something with the kind of murder mystery classic tropes of, say, Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, but then add in thirteen extremely catchy songs, that's. Uh, that's how I describe it. All over it. And actually, you mentioned <laughs> Agatha Christie there. Are you are you still are you still the living embodiment of Agatha Christie? Are you still writing new Poirot uh, novels? I am, and in fact, I am. I, 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 I don't regard myself as the living embodiment of Agatha well, Christie. Well, I've, I've decided you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I am still writing Poirot novels. In fact, the next novel 
that I will publish after the couple at the table. My next novel will be my fifth Poirot novel, which I'm making very exciting notes for at the moment. Okay. And I've got an amazing hook for it, which I'm just so excited <laughs> about. Look at you bubbling away. You're delighted well, that, with yourself. That's what gets me... That, as a writer, what excites me most is just the most amazing plot hook, where you just think, with a plot hook like this, just think of the possibilities. That's my biggest source of excitement as a writer. And is it a different, like, if it's a Sophie Hanna book or it's a Poirot book, are they different sorts of plot hooks, if you know what I mean? Do you know, ooh, that's a Poirot idea or this is a Sophie Hanna idea? Well, I generally do know, but weirdly, the type of plot hook for both is quite surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, similar because I was heavily influenced by Agatha Christie at a very young age. So even when I started writing crime and, you know, for... 10 or 12 or however many years I wrote only contemporary psychological thrillers with no Poirot novels because I didn't even know that was going to be a thing but I all the time found myself gravitating towards the sorts of plot hooks that I'd loved from Agatha Christie novels where the mystery is so mysterious that the reader can't even begin to speculate about what might be going on and because I'd been introduced to that kind of amazing high octane plot hook by Agatha I knew it was the kind I liked best, so I was looking out for and putting in my contemporary thrillers those kind of plot hooks anyway. So when I was asked to write prior novels, I was like, now I can do this <laughs> even more Agatha-ishly. Uh, but it's a great plot in The Couple at the Table. It's out in Harbeck now. Uh, oh, no, not now. Thursday, the 27th of January. So this Thursday. Thank you so much, Sophie Hannah, for coming in to see us. Thank you a for having me on. Good luck the book. And we look forward to the next Poirot as well. Thank, Thank you very you. much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Oh, look. It is time to play the Checkout Challenge with Waitrose. Uh, we've got two callers on the line. First caller is John. Hello, John. Good afternoon, Graham. How are you? I'm very excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think this is one of those things where I'm more nervous than people playing. Um, <laughs> I doubt uh, it. Uh, so what are, you, what are you up to in uh, Devon today, John? Um, domestic servant today, Graham. Oh, domestic right. servant. Bit of cleaning, bit of ironing, bit of cooking. Just that sort of day, really. And, a and bit of course, of, listening to you. Yes, and a bit of doing none of that while you play this game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. now I understand why you've entered. <laughs> and you were on hold for a while. So, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. you've killed a good, very good... You're killing a good half hour with this. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Um, and do you... Do, are you the person who normally does the shop? Will you be good on prices? Oh. I, I hope so, yes. I do do the shop, yes. yes okay. I'm very, yes. You just don't look at the prices. <laughs> I try not to, no. Uh, all right, let's find out who you're playing against. It's uh, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well too, thank you. I'm very excited indeed. Oh, there's so much excitement. I love it. Uh, where are you, Sarah? Uh, in Ferbiton, sorry. Okay, and what are you up to today on this Sunday? Uh, so we are getting ready to go and meet some family for a lovely Sunday lunch. Um, we've got um, my fiancé's family all coming to meet together in Cambridge, actually. So we need to set off in about half an hour. Um, we've got a, 
great-granddad meeting the new baby, Callum. So it's all really Aww. lovely, uh, exciting. The only thing that would make it better if you walked in but punching the air going, I've won a Graham Norton Waitrose gift box. That, that they really... They really love that. I mean, that would be lovely. <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot in between uh, now and then. Uh, right, John and Sarah, this is how it works. I list items from Waitrose's great January savings event. I put them through the checkout. I announce what I'm putting through the checkout. Then in your head, you've got to guess how much that might be. And then when you think I've reached £20, shout out your name, your own mm-hmm. name. So that, just a reminder, that'll be Sarah or John. And, <laughs> and then, so somebody shouts out the name. The other caller keeps going and then they decide when it's £20. Whoever's closest will win. The Graham Norton with Waitrose gift box, including the champagne, the reusable coffee cup, and lovely vinegars and chocolates and all sorts. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> okay. Waitrose Dutch Organic British Free Range Dry Cured Cherrywood Smoked Book bag, Smoked Back Bacon Six Pack. I mean, it's posh rashers, really, that's what that is. Uh, Waitrose Apple Crumble. Pizza Express Dough Balls and Dip. Oh, I haven't had that for ages. Jordan's Super Nutty Granola, 550 grams, you know. Waitress and Partners, number one, Alaskan Sockeye Salmon Fillet. It's a two-pack. Old El Paso Cheesy Baked Enchilada Kit. Simple Nourishing Shower Cream. Waitrose Indian Vegetable Biryani. Biryani. Nestle Organic Shreddies, 460 grams. McFitties dark chocolate hobnobs. Oh, lovely. Nescafe. Sorry? That was Sarah. Sarah. Okay, Sarah's gone after the... You went after the hobnobs. Okay. Uh, Nescafe Azira Americano instant coffee, 90 grams. Innocent Recharge Super Smoothie, 750 milliliters. John. Okay. Uh, I can tell you that the person closest to 20 pounds... Was Sarah and Serberton. She's punching the air. The grandfather, the baby. Oh, they're lifting her shoulder high. They're parading around the pub. Uh, well done, you. John, you, you do not look at the prices. You both went quite a ways over 20 pounds. Yeah, John, you're useless. Thank you. Someone needs to monitor your shopping from now on. <laughs> All right, enjoy the rest of your day, John. Bye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Sarah, congratulations. The uh, the waitress gift box will be winging its way to you. Uh, would you? Uh, do you want to name check any of the people you're you're meeting for lunch today, or anyone else you'd like to say hello to on the radio? Uh, yeah, I would like to say hello to all of the Grimsdale family who are seeing later today. I want to say hello to my brother who is um, being sneaky at work and he's an NHS dispatcher, so he's listening on his phone and he shouldn't be. But um, hello to him and my friend Nigel and Kate as well. Uh, loads of love to them. You're a winner, you baby. So uh, well done, you. And uh, I, honestly, the, the gift box, I mean, it's a nice box, but its contents are delicious. So thank you very <laughs> much for playing the checkout challenge, Sarah. Bye. Thank you so much. Oh, how time flies. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the best of bits from the show from Monday morning. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.